0: If you have a Bible with you, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading through that chapter here in just one moment. If you need to borrow a Bible, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on page 897 of that Bible. And There are things in this world that simply do not go well together. The best example of this is oil and water. No matter how much you shake it, no matter how much you want them to mix together, they just simply don't go together. There are other things that just should never be put together on this earth. Meat and dessert do not belong together, okay? No matter how much people want bacon to be on donuts, it does not belong there. Just like I don't eat Pop-Tarts with my turkey, you shouldn't eat bacon with your donuts, you can wear bad Christmas sweaters. It's fine. Wear those, those hideous Christmas sweaters, but don't think that you can have class while you do it, right? They're there for a reason, but looking classy is not one of those things. You can put children in cars for a long car ride, but they will not go together. Eventually, the car is going to give out by sheer yelling and screaming, or you will give out or the kids will give out, but entropy will win. They don't belong together. For many of these things are incompatible and for good reason. There are a lot of other things, though, that seem like they're incompatible, that we don't naturally place together but nevertheless have to belong together. And discipline and love are two of those things. Not just the discipline of our children, which we all uphold. There, there are plenty of parenting textbooks and parenting books that will tell you that you don't really need to discipline kids. You just need to kind of show them and let them become who they are. And there are people out in the world who buy into that. Christians don't generally buy into that. By and large, Christians understand that there might be various ways that they discipline their kids, but they need to discipline their kids. But those same Christians who believe strongly in the disciplining of their kids— will sometimes not believe strongly at all and actually disengage from churches for thinking that they ever need to be disciplined for anything. Christians and churches don't view discipline within the church as something that is good, certainly not associated with love. Paul will have none of that. Discipline is necessary in churches and, frankly, occurs regularly, although it is not and should not always be noticed. There's a couple of different, before we get into the text, a couple of different ways in which discipline actually happens within a church. And they're important, both equally important. The first one is formative. Because there are times in which you are going to be disciplined not because you've done anything wrong, not because you're reading the Bible and God tells you and convicts you of sin in your life, But because in reading the Bible and praying and in hearing, God is forming you and changing you that you might be a more complete Christian. He is forming you into what you ought to be. That's formative discipline. I hope that that happens quite a bit. But there's also then formal discipline, which is where people are in sin. And people do have somebody come to them and convict them of sin. Or scriptures convict you of that sin. And there needs to be repentance and faith that they might be brought back into a right standing before God. Both formal and formative discipline are necessary for the health of a church and for the health of Christians within that church. Many have and many believe in a, a forming sort of discipline where you are, you are made to be more like Christ by reading the Word and, and by by studying and by listening to sermons and by praying, but they askew any sort of formal discipline, partly because it's difficult and ugly, but also because it's seen to be unloving, unkind, and will actually, they think, keep people from Christ. As we come to our text this morning, it's quite clear that Paul does not agree with such things. Let us read the text before us and try and work through how indeed Disciple, uh, disciplining people, not just making disciples, but disciplining them, is actually a loving thing for Christians to do. Begin reading with me in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders?" Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of our God. Typically talking about discipline like this is something that many people find distasteful and difficult, especially within churches. And it brings up these pictures of judgmentalism, A sort of competitive or theatrical holiness where you're just trying to appear holier than other people and can even sort of dredge up the very sort of factions that Paul has already tried to put to bed in the first four chapters. Nevertheless, Paul quickly switches topics here. It's clear that The letter that reached him or the word that reached him had several things that he needed to handle and this was the second major thing that he was going to handle other than the the factions and divisions within the church, the fact that this sort of rampant sexual immorality was going on and the church, knowing about it, had not done anything about it. We need to be clear. It's not straightforward incest. A man having his father's wife was meant to imply that that was his stepmother, but Paul is still very clear. Even the Gentiles will have nothing to do with that. And and it's clear that the Corinthians not only knew about it, but they they weren't actively doing anything. Many of them probably thought that it was wrong, but they weren't doing anything about it. They weren't enacting discipline on it. And for some reason, they were arrogant about it. Whether they were arrogant because they, they thought that this was a grand demonstration of, of their tolerance or of their sexual liberation or whatever the case might be, they were arrogant about it. This puffed them up with pride, Paul says. And they should have instead been mournful that such a thing was happening. It's not a reason for rejoicing, but for sadness and mourning. And so he calls for action. Very quickly, he says, even though I'm not with you, this has to happen. It has to have this man removed. Now, there's a lot of reading between the lines we've got to do here because the Corinthians knew what was going on. Paul knew what was going on. I think that there's no doubt that, that this man was approached, was told that this was wrong. Certainly, some within the church would have known that this was wrong. Paul doesn't go on to explain why it's wrong. He seems to assume that they know that it's wrong and they're just not doing anything about it. This man refuses to repent and so Paul says he needs to be kicked out. It all seems well, not loving. It seems harsh, demanding, not gracious. But I want to give you at least four ways from the text that we can see that this is actually meant to be loving and a demonstration of love. First, discipline shows love to the sinner. Discipline shows love to the sinner. People who do not desire discipline within the church dangerously underestimate the nature and insidious nature of sin. They dangerously underestimate it. They think that it's a passing thing. They think that it's not a major deal. They don't consider the nature of sin being so evil and so wicked and the eventual outcome of unrepentant sin, being that you will be separated from Christ forever. This man's sin put him in danger, not of a mere loss of heavenly rewards, not of a mere loss of his life, not in a mere loss of, like, good things on the earth. But Paul is very clear. It is putting him in danger of damnation that this, if unrepented of, will separate him from Christ. It shows that he is not repentant. It shows that he is not filled with faith. And because of that, it is incredibly dangerous for him. It is, in fact, unloving to allow people to linger in their sin. If this is indeed the case, if unrepentant sin can condemn you, if unrepentant sin that you know about, certainly we all have sin that we don't know about, that we can't repent of things that we don't know, this man was very clearly in the wrong, confronted with that wrong, and unrepentant. To go to those lengths to tell him that he's wrong and to do nothing about it. Allows him to wallow in his sin, to linger in his sin. It puts him in grave danger. It is unloving. Paul is clear. And his words have an air of solemnity and importance and weightiness. When you gather in the name and in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In the end, what that means is simply this. He is not allowed to take the Lord's table with you anymore. He's not allowed to be considered a brother or sister by the people who are in this congregation. But Paul puts it slightly differently. There's so many people in this world who say, oh, well, that's that's all it is. You're just kind of kicking people back out in the world. What's the big deal? But Paul believes it's a really big deal. Paul doesn't think that spirits out there are just nice and kind and gracious to us like angels follow us around everywhere. He also knows that there are evil things out there. Satan is out there. Demons are out there foaming at the mouth trying to get at the livelihood and the lives of people within the church and outside of the church. And so Paul is very happy to say we will hand him over to Satan that maybe in the destruction of his flesh he will be saved in his soul. It's probably best not to take those words literally. I don't think that he actually means that the man's going to be thrust out and Satan will take his flesh. He will take his life. But Paul is sincerely hoping that he will learn a lesson by being removed from the church. He will see that he is outside of grace. He will see the disaster of his choices. He will see that his life is ruined outside of Christ and he will repent and come back. And for Paul to say it like he does makes it seem like this is the only way hope this man has. And it is not, let's be very clear, that he be punished for his sins. Paul's not saying, listen, this guy, this guy has done this incredibly evil and kind of yucky thing, and so what we're going to do is we're going to punish him by sending him out to the wilderness for a couple of months and see if he can come back right. It's not that he would be punished. He says very clearly, but that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It is for his health and his salvation. Do not fear the one who can kill the body but cannot touch the soul. Fear him rather who can kill the body and soul in hell. Jesus is clear about that and Paul is hoping that maybe by the destruction of his flesh, maybe by seeing the worthlessness of his sin and those desires in this world, this man might come back to know the Lord. We rightly And typically, think of poison as an evil and wicked thing. It damages the body, it causes illness and death. But when people get cancer, quite often the treatment is nothing short of poison. It's basically what chemo is it's just poison. It's a very specific, a very narrow type of poison, but it's poison. It is bad for the body, it is drastic in measure. But the measure being drastic and the harshness of the chemicals and the compounds is exactly the point. Such drastic measures are deemed acceptable because the alternative is much worse. So yes, it will make you sicker than you might currently be, but in the end, it's going to get you better. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Yes, the the treatment is exceptionally hard and exceptionally difficult, but it is the thing that will save him in the end. Discipline is not beautiful, it is not wonderful, nor is it easy. It isn't fun, it's not romantic, it's not lighthearted. It is a wretched business, but it is necessary for the health of people, and it is necessary for the health of churches. And when it's done, and done well, it is done out of love. And we need to be clear. There's a whole litany of reasons, and nefarious reasons at that, why certain people love to discipline others within the church. And it can always be carried out wrongly. It can be done because they've got really bad theology. It is quite often done because they want to be seen as people who have authority and control over other people's lives. It can be done out of anger, and it can be done out of jealousy. There are all kinds of ways in which such actions by churches can be done for all the wrong reasons, but simply because it's abused doesn't mean it should not be used. We have to be careful as we approach these things. But being careful and not doing them are not the same thing. To love sinners who are lost in their sin means we call them to account for that sin. Because we truly believe that sin is dangerous, that sin is wretched, that sin is ugly, and that sin will damn you. And we're not calling for people to work their way back into the grace of Jesus Christ. We're calling for people to know the grace of Jesus Christ and to repent. Discipline is for the sinner, but it's a demonstration of love for the sinner. Secondly, not only does discipline show love for the sinner, discipline shows love for the church. Discipline shows love for the church. Don't think for a second that that discipline is just for the person who's being disciplined, who needs to be brought back in line. It's used for the rest of the church as well. It's good for the congregation. Paul uses this wonderful metaphor for the effect of sin on other people. He says it's like leaven. It's this, this lightning agent that is used in bread. And when you put even a small amount of it into a large batch of dough, eventually, if it's mixed up, it's going to work its way through all of the dough. And he says this is what sin is like. It's like leaven. A little bit of it will spread and its effects will go throughout the entire congregation. If left untouched and untreated, it can affect all of you. And this is interesting because it's a sexual sin. And our culture is big on this idea of whatever my private sexual practices are, I don't see how it can possibly affect other people. But Paul clearly does not share that same idea. He thinks that your private sexual sins do impact and affect the people who sit around you, the people of faith that you share bread with that you share life with, that you are in covenant with. I think that there are two ways in which this happens. How the leaven kind of eventually works its way through all of the batch of dough. First, for many people, it's going to hinder the pursuit of holiness. If the leaders will not discipline this man, because for whatever reason, they don't think that it matters so much. They don't care about unholiness. They, they don't care about, about making it clear that this is an unacceptable thing to do within the congregation or within the body. Why, why should they care at all about holiness? If you don't care about unholiness, then you don't care about holiness. If this was an acceptable form of life, if the action bears so little import that the lives of the people there shouldn't even care about it, what good is holiness? Why would anyone do the hard work of self-control and self-discipline, of beating back the flesh, when it seems like you can just give in to it and it doesn't matter anyway? Paul clearly thinks that holiness is of vast importance. It isn't just important, it's vital to the life of the congregation, and individually and corporately, it's the goal of our moral lives to be holy before God. It's not this sort of secondary thing. It's not, it's not for some who are really theologically and religiously motivated. It's not for people who are overly spiritual. And for the vast majority of people, it just doesn't matter. You can just go about your day fumbling around, doing whatever you want. You don't really need to pursue holiness. And there's just a separate class of people. Paul doesn't believe that. There's one class of Christians Who are all pursuing holiness. It doesn't mean that you're all as holy as you can be, but it does mean that you're pursuing it. That pursuit is not the domain of the exceptionally faithful or religious. It is the pursuit of all Christians. We are all called to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and body. So, allowing sin makes all of that just babble. It's incoherent and needlessly difficult. It makes it makes the striving for holiness without discipline superfluous, and worth the effort for only a select group of people. But Paul will have none of that. We are all to pursue holiness. But secondly, and like that, it doesn't just hinder without disciplining people. It doesn't just hinder other people's holiness. It also speeds our depravity. It speeds our sin. It hinders holiness and speeds sin. We don't need more incentives to sin. We're already prone to sin. We don't need more opportunities. We don't need more excuses for it. Our flesh craves it. It is available to us everywhere. And so giving people an opportunity, making it seem like for a second that it's okay, is an invitation for people to dip their toes in that cold pool. Any church that knows the truth about sin, about its evil, about its danger, about its devastation, that it wreaks on the lives of people, knows how much it matters that they pursue holiness. Because we ought to pursue holiness, we pursue it not just in our lives individually, but collectively. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the body being built up that we build with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. He says, you, you build one another up You cannot do that without discipline. You can't do that without striving to be holy in how you live your life. We can't do this when we turn a blind eye to our brother or sister's sin or, God forbid, even boast over it like the Corinthians seem to do. We can only show love for the church, true love, and the building up of the church as we ought to do it when we take sin seriously and we take discipline seriously. Third, third, Discipline not only shows love for the church, discipline shows love for salvation. Discipline shows love for salvation. The metaphor of leaven works well as just a straightforward metaphor, doing no extra work in the text. So if you don't know anything about any other parts of the Bible, you can understand how leaven works, and you can see how leaven, you know, when you do, you know, knead a little bit of dough with some leaven in it, it's eventually going to work through the dough, and you're like, I get what Paul is saying there. But leaven, and even the way that Paul is using it here, stretches itself a little bit further than that. Because he immediately starts talking about Passover. This picture then is drawn directly from the Old Testament. This goes all the way back to Exodus. The last of the, the signs and the wonders that the Lord is doing in Egypt. As his people have been brought down to Egypt, they have been enslaved for 400 years. He is now going to bring them up out of Egypt. He has visited with signs and wonders the people of Egypt and his people to show that he is the Lord God and there are no other gods like him. The last of these is the killing of the firstborn. The Lord is going to go throughout all of the land of Egypt and he is going to take the life of the firstborn. For most of the Israelites, They've been clear and free since the third sign. The first two signs, the Lord brought upon all of the people of Egypt, whether Hebrew or whether Egyptian. But since that third wonder, he has separated out the two, but now he is saying this particular sign and wonder is for all in the land. I will take every firstborn, regardless if they are Egyptian or they are Hebrew, unless Unless you go and you take a spotless lamb and you kill it and you drain its blood and you take that blood and you put it on the doorpost and the lintel and then I will pass over all who are found in that house. Now, this is quite clearly a monumental event in Israel's history. This is, by the way, the very picture of Jesus himself. The, the killing of the lamb and the blood being applied to the people of faith inside, that they might be passed over, that death might not come for them, that they will have their sins forgiven. Paul even says this where he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slaughtered. He died for our sins. He died so that we might not have to, so that the Lord could pass over us in judgment. And so you would think, given that central picture of what it was going to be, And the centrality of of the killing of the lamb and the spreading of the blood that it was that if you were going to make a memorial service, the centerpiece of that service would be roast lamb. Here is how the Lord, in the book of Exodus, tells his people that they are going to remember this. In Exodus chapter 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. He even calls it, it's not the feast of the sacrificed lamb. You ever wonder about that? It's a pretty amazing thing. It's the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. This Passover event, which they were saved not because they ate a certain kind of bread, but because the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost, nevertheless is remembered as the feast of unleavened bread. But why? You might say, well, God just probably has something against leaven. I mean, he's got uh, problems with other things, right? He doesn't want his people in the Old Testament to eat pork or to eat a lot of different kinds of like shellfish. God probably did that because he knew that they were going to throw some bacon on a donut and he's like, you can't do that. It's horrible. So to spare them, he said, no pigs. But it's quite clear that that's not what's going on here. He doesn't have a problem with leaven because it's found in their house. You can have it. 51 weeks a year, it's yours. Leaven all the bread you want. Make it as bubbly and delicious as you can. But this week, that's not going to be the case. It all comes down to time. The Lord has them make unleavened bread because when they are going to leave, they found out about that wonder that night. They left in the morning. They had no time for leaven. It's all about time. Exodus twelve thirty nine after the passage that we just read, tells us why unleavened bread was used. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. It's not just that they were going to be getting out of town, but the salvation was here and now, and leaven needs time. If they were going to wait for the bread to be leavened, they were going to stay in Egypt. Pharaoh was going to change his mind. Not too long, he was going to pursue them to the Red Sea. Had they stayed, they would have stayed. They would have been in slavery. They would have been in sin. They would have been in idolatry. They would have suffered death. The very fact that they had unleavened bread means they got up and left because salvation was here. Because they were leaving the place of death. They were leaving the place of of, of slavery. They were leaving their sin behind them. Therefore, leaven pictures all of that. It pictures the idea of staying in this world, of being a part of this world, of considering yourself another person in this world, of of appeal to the flesh, of appeal to idolatry, of appeal to sin. And So Paul says, listen, you, you can't do this. And notice, it's a feast. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival. It's meant to be joyous. It's meant to be a happy time of remembering that God has sacrificed a lamb, his own son, for our sake, that we might be freed from these things. Why, if we trust in that, would we ever want to stay in our sin? We thrust the leaven aside because we want something better than what this world offers us and certainly better than what our sin offers us. We love that God has freed us from sin. We love that our slavery to it has come to an end. We love that our hope and our citizenship lies in a place that is not like the decrepit nature of this world and even like our flesh here in this world. Discipline shows love for our salvation. Last and briefly, discipline shows love and restraint. Shows love and restraint. Discipline isn't willy-nilly. It's not arbitrary. It's not capricious, but it's based on the word of God he says quite clearly god judges those outside but you are to purge the evil person from among you it seems to be a quote and paul is very clear the word of god has told you that this cannot happen it is not for the people who are on the outside it says anyone who bears the name of brother and and again unfortunately Didn't do a great job of the translation here. It should say brother or sister. Anyone who bears the name of Christian, who you would call brother or sister, who engages in this type of behavior and is unrepentant from it, you can't have that among you. You cannot. But there is still restraint. He said... You maybe misunderstood me when I wrote to you before. I told you not to associate with the sexually immoral and some of you thought that that meant that you're supposed to go be monks in the desert or something like that, that you would remove yourself completely and utterly from the world and I don't mean that. You have to associate with people. You've got to go to the market. You've got to have jobs. Frankly, some of you have to have wives and husbands and children who aren't saved and you've got to put up with them. You have to associate with them. And what I meant is for people In the church. So there's a great deal of restraint here. Paul's quite clear. I'm not judging the people of the world. Now, understand when Paul says, I'm not judging the people of the world, he doesn't mean that we're not to go out and we're not to tell the world that unless they repent and believe, they will not be saved, that they're cut off from God. We can announce the judgment of God for the world. Judging here has nothing to do with speaking the word of the Lord. It has everything to do with action. The judgment here is the kicking out of the person. It's not just saying that he is wrong and guilty, but it's actually taking action against him. Paul's point is very clear. That's not what the church is here for. The church is here for the church's business. We're not to be Called upon to act on the world's sin. The church's responsibility is not first and foremost to arrange society so that unsaved people live by our morals and our values. There's a religion that does that and it's called Islam. That's not us. The church should seek justice, but we restrain ourselves from acting on judgment. That doesn't mean that we don't have civic and political duties. We have those, and we can argue and debate about how we are to handle individually ourselves out in the world. But that's not the church's business. The church's business in acting discipline is acting discipline upon those who call themselves believers. And one of the reasons why we stress so much membership in a church is because there is no way to make any of this mean anything unless membership means something. If you don't belong to a people, being removed from that people is meaningless. If you were to come to me and say, you know what? You can't be a citizen in England. I'm going to say, I don't care. I didn't want your country when I walked away from it in 1776 anyways. I wasn't there present, but I was there in spirit. And we enacted judgment upon them. Sorry, I, that was not scripted. One of the reasons why we think that the membership is so important is precisely that. Because we don't judge the outside world. We're not enacting anything on the outside world. The church has long been bad about this. From the early church, through the Catholic church, even through parts of the Reformation, we are bad about that. We misunderstood the place and the role of, of discipline within the church and within society. But Paul is very clear. We're not worried about making the people of the world act a certain way. We are very concerned, very concerned, with enacting that within the body of believers. We are restrained when it comes to acting on them and we restrain sin amongst the people of God. And in both of those things, we show and demonstrate love. Now, there's more to say about discipline than all that. There's, there's the procedure of how this sort of formal discipline is to happen. There's wisdom about when it ought to be applied. There's all kinds of things that we could say about discipline. But the fact that we are called on to discipline one another. And the fact that doing so, at times, although ugly and difficult, is still loving, needs to be accepted by the people of Christ. There are indeed things that don't go together. But there are also plenty of things that seem so disconnected from one another, but in time they must be seen as right and true. And discipline and love are like that. We oftentimes think that discipline is simply a way to exercise control and authority and to rule over others and to make no doubt certain, certain parts of those are absolutely true and those things can absolutely be abused. But we ought to consider that there is a better way. That we can do what the Lord has called us to do in a way that is rightly befitting his people, good for the glory of God and good for them. True love And good discipline go hand in hand while we walk through this world. God's word holds this very thing out for us. In the book of Hebrews, this is the measure of being sons and daughters in the kingdom. Hebrews begins with a quote of the Old Testament. My son, this is in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and you are not sons. Let us pray that this sort of formative discipline of this nature is never needed here. Let's pray that we never have to get to the point or we have to stand before people as we have had to do in the past and to enact discipline on a member of this church. Let us pray that the formative discipline of hearing and reading the word and prayer is enough. Let us also pray that we will have the fortitude and love to discipline one another when that action is required. Let us do it not out of anger or spite or control, but for the love of the sinner, for the church, and our salvation. Let's pray. God, we are rightfully hesitant to discipline one another for we ourselves are guilty of sin. Therefore, we pray not only for the fortitude to do what is right, but wisdom to avoid what is wrong. We are prone to enacting discipline for wrong reasons, to appease the desires of our flesh and not for the good of our brothers and sisters. Help us to love them well, that we might help them grow into maturity, that you might be glorified in their lives. Help us even to receive such things well knowing that there is none of us who are above such needs. And in humility, we all ought to have and care for the wisdom of others. Give us holiness and purity, but give us repentance as well, so that in all things, we might be submissive to your word, out of reverence for our God and King, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.